Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have my friend Russ Jacoby of Mossback, Arizona on the line. Russ, how you doing? Excellent, Jay. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I, I um, was giving you some ribbon last night uh, on Facebook. Um, you had gone to, you're going to have to tell us about the uh, Raptor Driving School, Ford Raptor Driving School that you went to or driving test or whatever they call it. And I was saying uh you want to race and you said sure and then had several of your friends jump on there saying i was crazy to think about racing you and then i was firing back saying your your vehicle isn't even broke in yet but all the while knowing that any vehicle you drive is broken in after about three days jay how many miles you got on your raptor about 60 so I've had mine since September, and I've got uh, almost 17,000. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me about uh, the school that you went to. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw some pictures of it. It looked awesome. Where was it? And Tell me about it. So it's the Ford Performance Raptor Assault Course, and it's in uh, Utah. And the facility that you start out at is got a couple names. Um, some people call it Miller Motorsports Speedway, um, Utah Motorsports Complex. Um, but it's just outside of Salt Lake. And you show up. It comes with your Raptor when you purchase your Raptor. And the school is the type of class where you got to realize a wide cross-section of Americana is showing up there. So we had one student that was in the class from Connecticut that literally had never had his truck on a dirt road. And we had uh, someone there that had raced in the Baja 1000. And you've got everything in between. So the class is designed for an expert to take and become more familiar with their Raptor and the capabilities of the Raptor. But it's also designed where a novice can show up and learn what dirt is. So it's pretty cool that they can take such a wide cross-section and provide something for everybody. For sure. It looked like you had a really good time. Was that a one-day deal, or how, how, how did that go down? So you start off the night before with a welcome dinner, and there's a lot of orientation, and they cover some of the basics that first night. Um, but mainly you get to figure out how the class is going to work. Um, it's mainly the one-day class the next day. Um, it starts off in the morning. Um, there's some classroom training to just get people oriented. Um, you leave the classroom. They get you oriented in the vehicle. And once you're comfortable with that, then you head into a structured environment that's outdoors um, where you actually start doing some racing. And they teach side hilling, left foot braking, hill climbing, and hill descent control. Um, after those structured environments, you leave those and you travel 30 miles out into uh, public lands um, where you can travel on what we in Arizona call a two-track or uh, a dirt road in BLM and Forest Service areas. We're able to do hill climbing, kind of like mini Baja racing, and just le really learn the capabilities of the Raptor. Of which you had already tested out the Raptor, I'm sure, with 17,000 miles since September, but did you do you feel like you definitely learned stuff as far as driving skills? I can't say enough nice things about the instructors. You definitely are going to learn stuff no matter your level. Um, the nice thing about the instructors is they're all experts in their fields, and they're there to answer questions you have and help you advance no matter what level that you're at. Uh, there's 10 trucks. 
and each truck has two students. So there's 20 students in the class, four instructors, and the instructor is not actually in the vehicle with you. Um, they break the class into two pods, and uh, I think the best position is the last person in pod one. Um, in that position, I could hang back a little bit and then let the group get a little bit up in front, and it gave me room to kind of practice some of the stuff they were teaching you. Um, and you learn the different modes that the Raptor has, just the different capabilities of the truck, and then the instructors are going to give you feedback about, hey, this is something I think you could work on or, or different things like that. Cool stuff, man. That's awesome. Well, I enjoy your pictures. You know, one thing, Russ, too, um, I'm noticing that uh, – on Facebook, uh, you are actually doing kind of a blog-style Facebook. I don't know if um, you're doing this by design, but I've really enjoyed uh, following you on Facebook. And you've, you've kind of been one that uh, really, you know, wasn't posting all the time, but now you're posting regular content. Was there something that changed in you personally or, a, a, you know, an idea that you had to, um, you know, get a little more active and let people, you know, have an eye into, you know, your everyday life? Um, actually, several things. So my time is important to me with my family. Um, I do have a full-time day job, but then I also am full-time guide and outfitter. And it gets to be to the point where I just can't keep up. And I've brought on helpers. Um, I divest anything I can to other people. Um, but there's only so much of my time available. And I find myself saying the same things over and over again. So Facebook is so popular. It's a way that I can communicate to a broad audience and get some of my personal time back. Um, one of the other things is I was raised by a police officer. So I don't trust people, and for good reason. So I don't want people to know when I'm someplace and where I'm at and different things like that. So it's hard for me to really publish some of that information um, so I'm trying to publish in a, such a way that it's not, I'm not at home right now, come break into my house. So I'm right. publishing it after the fact and letting people know, like, what can they expect when they show up on the Kaibab or on the Strip and what's really going on. When I get a phone call from a hunter right now that says, hey, this weekend I'm going to drive to Fire Point in my camp trailer, what do you think? And I laugh. It, it's hard for them to believe there's between two and four feet of snow on the Kaibab. Because they live in Phoenix and they don't see snow. Um, when I post a picture from this past weekend that shows that much snow on the ground, they start to get it. Yeah, well, I'm excited about um, I'm excited about you posting more regularly, and um, it's always nice to read the the um, content and, and you know not only see good pictures but you know get some good good thoughts from you and good comments. So I'm sure you're going to get some good feedback from that, and um, I know what it's like to, you know, feel like you're repeating yourself. Uh, and, and that's one of the benefits I have with this podcast is I'm able to get a lot of information out there. And, um, you know, if people have more follow-up questions, you know, they can come back and, and ask questions. But I, I feel like that's a great way. And Instagram, Facebook, those are great ways to get, you know, what you want out there. And then if there's follow-up questions, so be it. Um, and, but, you know, you can answer so much with, with you know, pictures and, and some text uh, in general information, so that's all good stuff. Uh, speaking Absolutely about great. the – yeah, go ahead. One of the things I do now is when a hunter contacts me is I send him an email, 
And in there, there's links to my past podcasts covering the buffalo with you. Um, we can supplement that with additional pictures and photographs, but also the links to what's going on on Facebook. So we've started what we're calling the Bison Information Sharing Series. And in that series, we're covering things like shot placement, gender identification, um, preparation, survival, snow conditions, and et cetera. Great. Good stuff. Good, good idea and good stuff. Speaking of the Kaibab, you were just up there. You posted some pictures of snow. Um, I know we talk a lot on prior episodes that you've been on about conditions and, and what have you. Um, where do we sit right now um, as far as winter moisture compared to other years? Um, you know, any forecast, outlook, anything like that? So I would say we got half as much snow as normal. And it's interesting because I think snow in Flagstaff was much less than normal. But the Kaibab still got a lot more than you would expect. And it came at weird and odd times. So in January, we had a lot of dirt, which is pretty unusual for the Kaibab. But coming into to March, I would say that we were definitely behind, but we probably weren't as bad off on the Kayabab as we might be as other places in the state. And that's good and bad. Um, I think that's bad for later in the summer that uh, the Kayabab is really going to suffer because there's a lot of trees and there's not enough moisture. Um, but we can't complain about the moisture that we did get. Uh, one of the other bad things about it is people are going to think that it's okay and you can just drive up there and go where you want to, and that's not really the case right now. Um, that could change drastically in the next few weeks before the next season opens, but I think people are going to experience a lot more snow than they're expecting. When does the next season start? So the structure of the hunts were different this year. Normally they start in January and they run till early spring. Um, this year, the hunt didn't, isn't starting until the middle of April, and it'll go till early May. How do you think that's going to affect um, the overall hunt pressure, the quality of the hunt by, by the structure that it is now? Um, so it's a six-week hunt. I, I said earlier, I'm at the end of May. So it's a six-week hunt, basically, and it used to be six months, and then it got trimmed down to five months. Obviously, you can't do as much with six weeks as you can with six months. Um, but in the past, the majority of the hunters chose to hunt late in the season. So from that perspective, it's probably not going to change a lot. Um, but you've got more tags. We're putting 25 hunters in the field during a six-week period, and it could get kind of crowded. So with that crowding, it's probably going to affect, if we've talked about before on the podcast, if, if you've got groups of hunters or, or individual hunters that are kind of only out for themselves that can create a situation where it can kind of ruin the hunt for not only them but everybody else, how, you know, how do you think that's going to play out in this six-week structure? Well, we've kind of built a reputation of being able to help a large group of hunters, and that helps. But this hunt is unique and different, as we've talked about on previous podcasts. It's not like a Unit 9 elk hunt where – if you're in an area and there's a bunch of people, you can move somewhere else. Um, it's no secret that the majority of bison are harvested literally right against the fence line, and that concentrates hunters. When you concentrate hunters, um, a hunter that's um, traveling around and making a lot of noise can disturb a wide area and ruin it for other people. 
Um, fortunately, in the past, most hunters have worked together, um, and that's unusual for hunters to co-op or work with other people in the field that have the same tag that they do, but that's proven to be an effective method for hunters to all be successful in a very small area. Russ, uh, last time we talked, there was stuff going on about the Park Service and potentially doing some hunting, uh, I think, by government or, or you know, um, I guess uh, they were going to dictate who was going to go in and shoot what, and there was some argument to try and let it be some sport hunting uh, going on. What ended up happening with that? So, you know, as hunters, we use the word hunting. Um, the word's not going to be called hunting. It'll be called culling, okay? So the management objective is to lower the number of bison on the plateau. To do that, you've got to remove animals. Well, there's only certain ways you could do that. And the tools available to the government agencies will likely be a combination of capture and relocation, um, capture and killing. Um, there's some activities going on inside the park to do uh, exclusion areas around water and so forth to encourage bison to leave naturally. Once they leave the Grand Canyon National Park naturally, they would be more available to, for sport hunting, which is obviously what our people want. Um, there's also likely to be culling with inside the confines of Grand Canyon National Park. And even though it's not called hunting, the outcome is similar. At the end of the day, someone took a rifle and shot a buffalo and it's dead. Um, so culling will likely be targeting uh, juvenile animals because this is not sport hunting. The idea here is to harass the animals and get them to leave where sport hunting can take place off of the park. It also makes the removal of the carcass much easier because you're not dealing with such a large animal. Um, that could be a combination of government employees and citizen volunteers. Um, those announcements have not actually been made yet. Um, those systems are kind of being developed and it's a three to five year management plan and some activities have begun, but obviously not all those activities have begun yet. Uh, to my knowledge, there has not yet been any removal of animals by a government agency within the confines of Grand Canyon National Park. I would expect that that would ramp up in the coming months and years in front of us. And the activities that have taken place thus far, to my knowledge, have been confined to the beginning of exclusion fences around water sources. Why in the world wouldn't they just allow hunters to go in there, even if it was, you know, under watchful eye or something like that, and just harvest some of those buffalo? Well, Jay, um, a reasonable, intelligent person feels exactly like you do. But if you've watched the news lately, you realize that America is not just reasonable, intelligent people. We have members of our society that eat laundry soap. And when you have that going on, that's why. Um, the wildlife conservation model in North America should involve sport hunting. It's a proven effective program. And I think we're seeing the effects of that not being followed in certain countries in Africa. Where you have sport hunting practiced, uh, things like elephants and rhinoceroses can live, and that renewable resource can be harvested, and the funds generated by those activities pay to protect and conserve those animals. 
where you don't have those programs. You either have drastic overpopulation or just the opposite, decimation and destruction of entire species because there's no programs in place to protect those animals. Now, our detractors will come along and say we're full of it, but the facts are properly managed sport hunting is a good thing for wildlife. The Grand Canyon National Park is a perfect example. It's not properly managed sport hunting, and it's a mess. Um, if there was properly managed sport hunting in the Grand Canyon National Park, we wouldn't be having these problems. But our current laws and rules and regulations don't allow that. With all that being said, do you honestly see them ever allowing sport hunting, or let's just well, call it hunting, in the national park? Do I think it'll happen? No. Do I think it should happen? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I never thought the guy in the Oval Office today would be in the office. I wanted him to be there because it's better than the alternative. But, you know, I think we're seeing all kinds of crazy new things happen. And the current program doesn't work. A different program is desperately needed. But um, political politics... Um, caused by our binary political parties have polarized people so far that we can't seem to come together on issues and compromise for a common good. A good example would be bison hunting. You know, you've got on the right hunters that insist on being able to hunt and on the left tree huggers or whatever term we want to use that insist on not hunting. Well, Middle ground would be proper sport hunting to remove the excess animals. But unless those two sides can come together in the middle and figure out how for that program to work, it can never happen. Is it quite honestly that the possibility uh, will be that uh, the government will just go in and shoot, you know, 100 buffalo or whatever the number is, just shoot them and leave them? And at that point, no one's happy. The hunters aren't happy. The people on the left aren't happy because they don't want the animals to die, but they're going to they're going to just go and kill them anyway. And then the meat is not even going to be harvested, and it's just going to go to waste. Isn't that a potential of what's going to happen? It certainly could happen. Now we're being told that that won't happen. They're saying they're going to utilize the carcasses, um, but certainly we want the carcasses to be utilized. But think about it. We're going to pay a government person to go solve a problem for us when instead we could be generating a revenue stream through sport hunting and someone that chooses to participate in those activities could have a great experience. And so what's actually going to happen? I think it's going to be a combination of a bunch of different things. You know, you and I come from a hunting perspective, but if we leave that perspective for just a minute, and, Joy, Jay, I'm going to anoint you <laughs> president of the Grand Canyon National Park. And, Jay, no matter what action you take, someone's going to hate you. Someone's going right. to be upset with you. It's not a winning situation. So it's not surprising that bureaucrats try to offend as little people as possible. If they don't, they don't remain bureaucrats for very long. So instead of actually solving problems, they're trying not to offend people. If I was making an analogy to parenting, are you being a parent or are you being a friend? Well, when you're a friend, 
in my experience, your kids turn out like idiots. If you're a parent, you're not always popular, but your kids turn out pretty darn good. We have to find a way to get bureaucrats to not be afraid of doing the right thing and, and not being afraid of alienating a few people because you're not going to make everyone happy. The Grand Canyon National Park's budget isn't doing very well. And they're sitting on an opportunity so instead of spending money to solve a problem, they could be generating money and solving a problem. That, to me, just from a fiscal perspective, seems like a really simple solution. Now, they'll tell you there's many reasons why they can't do that, rules, regulations, laws, whatever. All of those are set up by humans. Humans ought to be able to come together and fix those constraints and move forward in such a way that we solve problems in an effective and efficient way. And unfortunately, if you look around our country, that doesn't happen very often. No, it seems like more and more that's the truth. Um, I, I want to bounce here for just a second to the trail camera issue, and maybe you're more familiar with what has actually been you know, outlined and what is going to be quote-unquote law. What is going on with the trail camera ban um, that you know of? Jay, you're just picking all the controversial topics today. <laughs> <laughs> the trail camera... I want your take on it. I'm going to call it a change because it, it's not truly a ban. A ban would be no more trail cameras, okay? From my understanding, what's changing or proposed change is that they're not going to allow trail cameras at water sources, okay? Um, they're also not going to allow trail cameras that, that do the emailing. And then the third thing, um, well, let's just start with those. Trail cameras at water. I think that is coming from a reaction to what goes on in the strip. You know, you'll read online right now in some of the forums that you can walk up to a trail camera water hole on a strip and you'll see 20 cameras there. And I think that's an exaggeration. I personally bet you'll, you'll see 10. <laughs> Yeah, you know, six or eight or ten. And I think that freaks people out. Um, and maybe it should. I don't know. I'm not here to, to debate those topics. But uh, because of that, we're banning them on all water sources statewide. That, to me, seems like an overreaction. But you and I talked in a previous podcast. If we didn't figure out amongst ourselves as hunters, the government would figure it out for us. What I think is, personally think, is unfortunate about that is um, – I think it's a reaction to maybe some jealousy. People go, oh, we're killing these giant animals, and it's because of the trail cameras. Well, we kill a lot of those giant animals, and, the, and certainly trail cameras help, and they certainly are part of what we're doing. We kill great big animals before trail cameras, and we'll certainly kill great big animals after trail cameras. How we go about it might change, but it's, it's not going to change the outcome. So if you're upset about the results of the hunts, this isn't going to fix it. Um, also, I don't think it's enforceable. They're not saying you can't put a camera on water. They're saying you can't put a camera on water for purposes of hunting an animal. Well, Jay, if you were anointed to be the WM temporarily in 13B, let's say, and you walk up to a water hole, how do you know why that camera's there? And the answer is you don't. So are you going to confiscate it? I don't know. But if you do, and it wasn't placed there for hunting purposes, how can you legally justify taking that camera down? 
And the answer is I don't think you can. If you don't take the camera down, how do you prove that camera's up for someone that's hunting? Well, you can look at the name on the camera or something like that. But at the end of the day, what's to keep a dishonest person? Let me share a scenario with you. Joe goes up to the Kayabab and he hangs a camera. Joe doesn't have a tag. If Joe gets caught with a camera on the water hole, he simply tells the government agency, hey, I'm just out here taking pictures of wildlife. I'm not hunting. He gets all these pictures. Then he takes them home. He doesn't email them, and he doesn't talk about it on his phone, but his buddy that does have a tag is over at his house. They sit down in front of a computer, and they look at all the pictures. How are you going to enforce that? And the answer is I don't think you can. So I think it's a bad law, and I think it's a bad rule because it's unenforceable. More laws that are unenforceable might make people feel better, kind of like the gun topic we're probably going to talk about later, but they don't actually change what's going on. Um, so not putting cameras on water, I think, is a bad rule. The emailing. Um, the emailing cameras, a lot of people are against them because they think it's an unfair advantage. And I understand their perspective. I can tell you I personally don't see that because if you have a trail camera set up in an area that you can email, um, I don't know of any situations where people jump in their truck, run out there, the animal's still standing there, and they shoot it. I don't think that's happening. Now, if you have a camera in an area and you get emailed a picture and then you choose to go hunt it, you still have to hunt that animal. The areas where you actually have cell signal and you're actually emailing those pictures, I think, are relatively limited. If you're close enough to an urban center that you have email, chances are that camera is going to get stolen pretty quickly anyway. So I think, once again, it's one of those laws that someone's upset about and they're reacting to it. But no one that I have seen has presented any data or evidence showing why these particular situations are a problem. Um, when we legislate because of feelings as opposed to data, I think we are on a slippery slope. Specifically on the Kayabab, um, you run cameras on water for buffalo. How is that, if it gets passed, how do you think it's going to affect it, it's really, in, in that regard, I think it's a shame because there's a lot of data that's gathered by you who spends a lot of time up there. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on your own personal use of cameras for buffalo and trying to monitor them throughout the whole year? So if I never hung another trail camera on the Kaibab, it would not change what I do. Certainly trail cameras are a fun part of what we do, and they help my hunters believe what I tell them. When I walk up to a salt or to a travel route, I know what's going on there based on the sign on the ground because I've been doing it for so long. Okay? And I can honestly say this not because of my belief, but because of data. In the past, there have been hunts where I've pulled every camera off the plateau. And why did I do that? Well, archery deer hunt's a good example. There's so many people in the field messing with cameras I didn't want to take the risk of getting half my cameras stolen, so I just took them all down. If you look at the data, the outcome of those hunts, they were no different than the data of the hunts where I had cameras up. The difference is when I walk up to a, a salt or a blind or one of these water holes that we're hunting, and I tell the hunter there's a giant bull or there's a cow hitting this tank, and I can show them a picture of it, they understand it in a different way than if I just tell them what's going on. And the other thing, as you've pointed out, is the data. 
Like, I may know there's a specific, there's a big buffalo hitting this tank, but I don't know which one it is if I don't have a camera there. If I have a camera there, I can start to tell which specific animal it is. And my data does get shared with the government agencies. In the past, that's part of where they got their numbers of how many animals there are in the forest. And in the future, that's going to change. Now, will the agency go post their own cameras and gather that data themselves? I'm not sure. But we're changing from a situation where a properly involved sportsman like myself is presiding, providing something free of charge to the government agency, moving into a situation to get that information in the future, it's going to cost them money to do that. And it's not like they have extra money in their budget now. So from that perspective, I think it's a bad law, but I don't think it's going to change what we do. That brings up another topic that's kind of similar that frustrates me to no end, and that's with the new thing about desert sheep, um, and I guess Rocky, all the sheep for that matter, uh, you used to be able to get the uh, survey data of, you know, photos of the rams, of the ewes that they saw in the, in the aerial, um, you know, aerial photos. Uh, you used to be able to get data from, you know, they mark all the points of where they see the sheep with GPS locations. Um, you know, age class of rams and have you, class, you know, classification of rams. And um, now, you know, as of last year um, and maybe even the year before, I'm trying to think, but um, they, they're not allowing that anymore. It's super frustrating to me for, from my perspective, and, and whether I'm a guide or an outfitter, let's just say I'm not, let's just say I'm a general hunter. I've waited my whole life to draw this tag. In a lot of units, sheep can be very, very difficult to find. And they, they want hunters, they say they want hunters to harvest the oldest, most mature animals, but now they're not going to give us any of the data uh, as to where, you know, the whereabouts of the animals in the survey. They do most of their surveys in October, and most of the hunts are not till December. So I don't understand why anyone would get all bent out of shape and not give the hunters as much data as possible to say, hey, we only flew four class four rams, or we didn't fly any class four rams, or we flew 18 class four rams, whatever the information may be, and here's the general, not just the general, here's the exact location where we saw them. You know as well as I do, Russ, a lot of times those sheep are nowhere near that same spot, but in units where you have multiple chain, multiple mountain ranges, it might help to know that there's a class four ram over in this mountain range. And if your goal is to shoot a nine-year-old ram or older, and you would have a starting point to shoot that old mature ram, now they're not even going to tell us that. I, I'm, I've voiced my opinion to the Bighorn Sheep Society and I voiced it to a few game and fish, and it's just like it's just the way it is, and it's super frustrating. I feel like that's public information, um, and and it's unfortunate that, that that that's where we're at now. The other thing that's frustrating is you can't tell me, and and I'm probably getting a little chippy here, but it's it's close enough to my heart that it's just like I gotta say it. You can't tell me that if there's a game and fish employee that has a tag in a certain unit that his buddies within the department aren't going to get that data for that person. And so I think we're dealing with a little bit of a double standard there. And I'm usually 
one that is, you know, cheering on the Arizona Game and Fish because they do have a tough task at hand. But in this regard, it's it's very um, it, it it frustrates me very very much that they're not sharing that information anymore. Your thoughts? So Jay, I I hear where you're coming from, and uh, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. Um, I think it's unfortunate because I've heard the same sentiment from several other people that I think have contributed a lot to game and fish in the future. And their reaction from those hunters is like, screw them. I'm sick and tired of them taking, taking, taking. I'm done. And that's unfortunate because that hurts all of us. You know, it would be really nice if we could work as a group. But I would like to talk a, a couple points that you made there. Specifically, why are these things happening? And I think what we see is one person that gets on the commission isn't okay with something. They just fundamentally and personally are against trail cameras or against sharing flying data or whatever the task may be. And so they want it outlawed and they make it their personal agenda to outlaw that. The unfortunate thing about that situation is all future generations are affected by that one person's feelings. Now, is that one person's feelings right or wrong? It doesn't matter. It's one person's feelings. But what will happen in our society linked on the Internet is they'll get a group of people behind them that agree with that point of view, and they'll have another group of people that don't agree with it, and then they fight. Hunters shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves. We've got enemies out there that we should be worried about, like the lion ban for hunting in Arizona. We should be worried about that. Instead, hunters are worried about trail cameras. Well, the last person we should be fighting about our hunting rights is our own government agency. Are you freaking kidding me? So, I think, instead of getting upset, the best that we can do in our society is, in a structured way, make a logical agreement why it's a bad idea. In the case of trail cameras, outlawing them is a bad idea because it's not based on scientific data. If the department presented data showing trail cameras cause this bad impact, I think they would get people on board with it. Instead, they're saying, we don't want them here, and they've created an enemy. The flying data is no different. So not providing the bighorn sheep data, they just chose to do it. Nobody came forward and said, we're providing the data, and it's not meeting its intended objective, or we're providing the data, and hunters are ignoring it. Um, they just don't want to do it, so they're not going to do it anymore. And that's bad. That's the wrong reason to do it. It's not based on science. It's emotionally-based management instead of scientifically-based management. It goes against the North American conservation model. It's a bad thing. Um, in your case... And to add, go ahead. I think the average sportsman believes there's unfair advantages for guides or outfitters because they re regularly kill great big animals. They don't understand the amount of money, time, and effort that goes into making those those uh, events happen. Honestly, not providing the flying data to the average hunter hurts the average hunter more than the guides and outfitters. The Absolutely. guides and outfitters have the resources to go get that information in other ways. Your average hunter does not. So the people that should be bitching and complaining about this law isn't you or me. It's John Q. Public that doesn't hire an outfitter. He's the one getting screwed. Instead of Game and Fish providing him with thousands of dollars of data, he's getting nothing. And you and I, we're going to spend $1,000 and still get our data. 
Well, I absolutely agree, and I think over time, I think the, the age class of sheep getting harvested is going to go down. Um, I'll be shocked if I'm wrong, but it's, you know, I, it, it's unfortunate. Hopefully they can figure something out. I don't even understand what the logic is in not providing that data. I mean, it, it does not make someone. sense to me. I what? asked about that. I asked about that. So you know me, Jay. I know the laws. I pride myself on trying to know the laws better than anyone else because I try to understand exactly what the laws are and where the boundaries are at and take advantage, full advantage, of what's legal. And what I was told is there's a state law that says the Game and Fish cannot provide electronic data to um, the public in such a way that will harm a species. So... They're interpreting that law to say providing us electronic data is harming bighorn sheep populations. Now, I think that's a dangerous slope to be on, and here's why. Properly managed sport hunting helps wildlife populations. It doesn't harm them. Now, you obviously harm an individual animal, but an individual animal is not a species. But what has happened is new factions with the game and fish have taken a longstanding law and reinterpret it differently and used it as a way to outlaw it. So what they're saying is it's illegal for us to provide you that data. Well, there's no law that says it's illegal for us to give Jay Scott the data about bighorn sheep that we gather. They're interpreting a law in a way differently than they used to, and that is not good. I agree. Um I want, to stress, I want to stress something there. The flight data we should be pissed off about. But the thing that we should really be mad about is when Game and Fish is stating publicly providing sheep data to hunters is negatively harming a species in Arizona. That is something that all sportsmen should be freaking out about when our own game agency is saying we are harming a species, that's bad. Well, if anything, we're what's holding the species up. And that's the Absolutely. frustrating part to me is because they do all of their verbal surveys when the har hunter harvests its mandatory harvest and check out of the ram, which I'm you know, encouraging and, and think they should continue to do. But then they sit there and ask, what did you see? How many did you see? How many rams? How many ewes? How many days did you hunt? It's like, yep. wait yep. a minute, it's a one-way street here. And Absolutely. I don't, don't want to see hunters and our own game and fish department at butting heads and feel like it's us against them. In, in you know, prior years, it was always a cumulative effort of trying to harvest the oldest, most mature animals, and we're all working together. And I can understand if they just gave me the data but why wouldn't they just say, we're going to give everybody the data before you had to request it. Now they're saying nobody gets it. To me, that does not make any sense when we're all trying to harvest mature animals and follow that North American, um, you know, management model. It, it, you know, the conservation model, it, it, I, it just, anyway, we can go on and on about that. Well, um, it, in their perspective and the way they will answer that is we're still providing the data just in a different format than we used to. So what I was told for some units is 
we'll be happy to have a conversation with you, but we're not going to give you the GPS route the helicopter flew. So they will argue they're providing the same data in a different format. Well, you and I both know that's not completely true, but at the end of the day, if you put aside your feelings and you do sit down with them, you can still have a positive experience of saying, okay, how many Class A Rams did you see? And they might not point on a map where they saw it, but they're probably going to tell you it was in this mountain range. So they'll argue they are doing that, but it's definitely a change from the past. Let's move on to another topic. Um, we've got some crazy stuff going on in our nation right now with all these school shootings and you know, it's like you said before, there's, you know, people pushing their personal agendas and there, I don't think there's a single person in this world, well, I don't think there's a single person in this country that doesn't think these school shootings and such are just a complete tragedy. Um, but we're kind of at an intersection here where, you know, a lot of these school shootings are taking an, an opportunity uh, where one side or the other is taking opportunities to play their side on what should or shouldn't happen. I'm of the opinion there should be something that needs to happen, but uh, it's a very slippery slope like you talked before when you start talking about um, gun control. And I'm just curious from someone, you know, you've been around a while and you're pretty level-headed. I wanted to get your take on, you know, the NRA is being made out to be this, this evil, you know, horrible uh, group. And, I mean, I'm a life member of the NRA, and I'm proud of it. And I'm not a horrible person. I'm a, I'm a rational and logical person. But I'm being deemed by one side as being a, you know, you know, crazy lunatic, and I, I believe I'm far from that. Um, curious your thoughts on gun control, the NRA, all this stuff going on with the school shootings. So a couple things. Um, I appreciate you asking, Jay, and I appreciate you seeking my perspective. I really do. Make no mistake about it. There is an agenda here that has nothing to do with students being harmed in schools. There's a political agenda to eliminate guns ownership in, in America, and that is not okay. It's against our Constitution, okay? Now, since that famous recent shooting, there was another shooting in which it was stopped by an armed security at the school. Do we hear about that on the news? No. And why don't we hear about that on the news? Well, it's not portrayed because it doesn't help their agenda, okay? But a couple things here. There have been significantly more students killed by two other methods than guns since the school shootings, okay? Do you know what those two other methods are? No. Texting while driving and alcohol. There have been way more, hundreds more deaths from texting and from alcohol than there were from guns, okay? Shooting somebody with a gun is illegal. Texting while driving is illegal. Drinking and driving is illegal. But why, as a nation, does a certain political party push an agenda to outlaw guns? 
You don't see him trying to outlaw cell phones. You don't see him trying to outlaw alcohol. Even though 10 times or 100 times as many students are killed by those other two tools than by guns. So make no mistake about it. This is not about students being injured. It's about pushing an agenda. Once you realize that, we have to come together as a group, okay? Like-minded people have to come together. And I think you saw a Facebook post that I made. What I say in that Facebook post is that the Second Amendment rights are something we will not compromise on. And we will not compromise on those Second Amendment rights in a way that the other side cannot even begin to comprehend. Okay? Jay, what do you think will happen if a government agency comes to my home to disarm me? What do you think will happen? Is there any well, question I, in your mind what will happen? No, it's, it's, it would be sad that it would come to that, but I know what would happen. So I'm not threatening anyone. I'm trying to make sure another side of the equation understands how deeply held these beliefs are. They're not deeply held because I hunt. They're not deeply held because I believe it's a God-given right to be able to protect my family. And yes, I just said God in this calendar year because I'm not afraid to say that. What I am saying is you do not want to alienate free men. You do not want to alienate real men. There will become a fury unleashed that is so unimaginable that I don't think they're quite ready for it. Now, if someone came to my house to disarm me, would I shoot them? I'm not going to tell you that I would or that I would not. I will tell you what I will do. I will become a criminal. Because if you outlaw guns, I think it will be like prohibition. You're going to take honest, hardworking people that believe in being able to do something, and when you take that right away from them, they're going to do it illegally, and they're going to fight to keep it. And they're going to fight to keep it in a way much stronger than your marchers fight to take it away. You do not want to alienate hardworking men like myself that pay my taxes, that protect my family, and I leave other people alone. When they portray that the sins of criminals were perpetrated by the NRA and by our NRA members, we should not be okay with that, okay? That's defamation of character, and they should be prosecuted for it. So, Jay, you did not support the shootings that happened, nor did you participate in the shootings that happened. When the other side of the equation accuses you of supporting that, that is not okay. That is an attack on your character, and it is completely unacceptable. Now, if we want to have to sit down and have a debate of how we protect students, let's do that. But we are not okay with being portrayed as criminals because we are not criminals. And the last thing that that other side wants is to take every member of the NRA and make us criminals. Um, I'm quite proud to be a deplorable in this country, and... I keep my mouth shut and I stay out of things for the most part. But if they attack us and push us far enough, they're going to awake a giant they can't begin to understand. And they need to be aware of that. So how do we stop school shootings? That's what we're really talking about. 
And I think the answers um, may not be a solution that spans every school, okay? But isn't it interesting that the people pushing for gun control the most are all protected by guns? The Oscars and the actresses and actors at the Oscars that are against guns are all protected by them. Our politicians come to these marches and speak out, and the ones that are against gun control and the ones that are for having guns are both protected by guns. So let's make no mistake about it. This isn't about gun control. It's about taking guns away from the average person. And that's not okay. Our founding fathers said it was not okay. It's part of our constitution. And there are a large number of people in this country that think exactly like I do. You will not take my guns away. That famous quote, cold dead hands, is now being turned around against us and said, fine, we'll kill you and take your guns away. They do not want a revolution in this country because they will not survive it. <laughs> so, Jay, when it, I, I, want, I don't want to threaten anybody, but they thought six guys with box cutters on an airplane were a problem. What do you think will happen when you literally turn around a loose thousands of educated motivated people like myself how much disruption can i cause in our society if you alienate me far enough seriously come on no i mean it's a good point i think the the thing that i have a hard time with that i i don't understand is how we've gotten so far to where we're at now as far as it it, it seems to me as those we haven't. What we have is a media telling us we've gotten so far. If okay. you actually get out there and you did a poll in this country of how many people support guns and how many people are against guns, the vocal minority saying that they're against guns are the ones getting the airtime. With that school shooting, how many equal minutes did the other side get supporting guns? The answer is none. Every speech, every march, every newscast is about getting rid of them. Where are all of the newscasts about keeping them? Yeah, the people are there. They just don't get covered. So it's not like me and my 100 friends are the only ones on the planet that still want guns. You know, there's a crap ton of people in this country that understand guns aren't there for hunting. Guns, they're used for that, but that's not why they're there. Guns aren't there solely... Um, for any one specific purpose. Um, the main reason that our founding fathers included them was for government tyranny. If you look at history, when you disarm societies, you have what happened in Germany. You have what happened in other communist countries. And if you don't think that that can't happen here, you're an idiot. And I did use the I word. Well, I think it's kind of interesting when you look across the country in some of the most strictest gun law states and cities, why are they all the ones with the highest crime rate? Well, we all know why, Jay. But, you know, the other side of the aisle will say, well, if we didn't have guns anywhere, they wouldn't be able to get guns. And that's ridiculous. I think there was a news report recently of knives being used to commit murders in other countries, okay? The tool is not the problem. It's the behavior of the criminal 
that's the, that's the problem. Now, can you kill people faster with a gun than you can with a knife? The answer is it really depends on the situation. Um, police officers are taught that a perpetrator can run 21 feet and stab them faster than they can draw and shoot them, okay? If you were in a classroom with a baseball bat or an axe or a sword, you can kill people as fast or faster than you could with a firearm, okay? But headlines are all about guns because they want to outlaw them. Well, they're not wanting to outlaw them because those few students were killed in the school. They're wanting to outlaw them because they don't want us to have guns. Now, why don't they want us to have guns? That's what we really should be asking ourselves. Why does Jay Scott owning a gun such a bad thing in this country? Because last time I checked, you've not ever shot up a school. If we really wanted guns to not be used in crimes, we ought to require all gun owners to be members of the NRA. Because it kind of seems like being a member of the NRA precludes you from committing a crime with a firearm. Every instance that we have before us is committed by someone that wasn't a member of the NRA. But look who gets blamed for it. Yeah, and what's your thoughts about people out there that are gun owners and are not members of the NRA? That kind of bothers me, too. Well, I can kind of see where some of them come from. So I have friends that are not members of the NRA, and one of their things that they say about the NRA is, all my money that I send to them is spent on sending me letters to try to get more money. And so um, they would rather their money be used differently. Um, for some people, they can't afford it. But at the end of the day, we wouldn't have our gun rights if it wasn't for the NRA. So I really feel like we ought to all belong to the NRA. And as a society, we're headed down a course that unless we correct from it, it's going to turn out badly. Our political views get more and more divided, and we don't compromise like we used to. If you understand history, our founding fathers were able to bring together and form a nation because of compromise. You had people that believed in state rights. You had people that believed in federal rights. There were all kinds of different perspectives, and they had to compromise to get that worked out among those very diverse groups. That's why you have a House of Representatives and a Senate, right? Mm -hmm. But there are issues you do not compromise on. They're called the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Those are non-negotiable. As soon as you start compromising on those foundational principles of our nation, you are on a slope so slippery that who decides which rules we change and which ones we keep? And the answer, whoever screams the loudest, is the wrong answer. Is it the vocal majority or is it the true majority? I think that's the wrong answer, too. The correct answer is our founding fathers were wise in how they set up our country. It has worked perfectly for hundreds of years. What's different in our society now than then? Well, there's lots of things different. But my fundamental take, one of the biggest differences, is personal accountability, okay? Did the NRA shoot those students? No. Did the NRA members shoot those students? No. Is the NRA okay with what happened there? No. Absolutely not. 
But look at all the places where our systems broke down. Our law enforcement agencies failed, both on a local and a federal level. Um, all gun laws were, to my understanding, followed correctly in the purchase and the transfer of those firearms, okay? But you broke laws when you committed crimes with those firearms. And it was by a very troubled individual with lots of warning signs leading up to that event. Why are we not looking at the breakdown of our existing systems as opposed to trying to change our systems? So, you know, if the other side gets what they say that they want, like we change our laws about future purchases, are they going to be happy with that? And the answer is no. They're not going to be happy until they gather up every gun in America. And that's not going to happen. Because but Russ, like they, say, they, they say, oh, it's not about that. We're, we're just trying to get, you know, bump stocks eliminated. It's not about that. We're just trying to get fully automatic. It's not about your hunting rifles. It's, we're, you know, and that's what they say. But the reality is, I mean, I would say there's a far majority on one side that wants to get rid of all guns, and they're not going to yeah. rest until they do. Yeah, you can't lump everybody together. I think there are anti-gunners, if we can use that term, that just want certain ones eliminated right now. But who's to say what they'll want different in the future? But there certainly are members of that group that do and will admit out loud right now that they want all guns confiscated now. There's posts on Facebook of people literally saying, you want them taken from your cold, dead hands? Fine. We'll come take them from your cold, dead hands. There's other people on there running for political office saying that they support passing laws that it would be legal to shoot gun owners and take their guns. And that's current political candidates saying that. So anyone on the other side that says we're being paranoid is wrong. We're not being paranoid. That is the ultimate goal, whether they admit it or not. And it may not be the ultimate goal for all of them, but there are factions in that group that that is their ultimate goal. And even the ones that it's not their ultimate goal now, okay, you get rid of a certain class of firearms or handguns or whatever. In the future, the criminals are going to move to a different gun. And then when that one gets used, they're going to want to outlaw, outlaw that one. And then they'll move to a different gun. And then when that gets outlawed, they'll move to something else. When you eventually take away the guns, evil people are still going to commit evil they're just going to do it through different methods. Um, you know, we use the example in Germany, and I'm not picking on Germans, but I think it's a famous example. Most of those people killed weren't killed with guns. They were disarmed, but then they were killed with other methods. You don't need guns to kill people. But a disarmed society is a society where it's easy for a faction to come along and commit atrocities against another faction in that society. Our founding fathers understood that. That's why they adamantly expressed multiple ties and multiple ways why our Constitution and Bill of Rights included provisions to protect those basic fundamental rights. Now, they'll well, come one of the reasons they left and came across the ocean to be over here yeah. and form our country. Yeah. It was one of the exact yeah. reasons. Absolutely. And I use the word patriot in my post. I firmly believe that our country was founded by patriots. 
deep down inside, there was people willing to sacrifice everything. Those famous quotes you hear, Paul Revere, give me liberty, give me death. Um, you read the writings of our presidents and our founding fathers. All of them supported what we're talking about and religious freedoms. What's interesting is people that on our side of the fence that believe in owning guns buy guns and own them. And people that don't believe in guns don't buy them. Don't have a gun then. And let's have personal accountability. If one of the guns you own, Jay, gets used inappropriately, I think you should be responsible for that. You're responsible for what happens with your gun. And I think most gun owners are fine with that. I know I keep mine under control. What a problem comes in is when a faction uses this as an agenda to accomplish their goals, which we haven't talked about. Why would you want to disarm a society if it's not for trying to protect students? Because that's clearly not what it's about. Why would you want to control. disarm a society? Control. You want control over that society. If we relinquish control of our society, we are no longer free men. And I, for one, will never, ever, ever relinquish control. And what's interesting is how many people feel that same way. Even yeah, you're right. that little twit that's on CNN every day, look what happened when they gave him a clear backpack and an ID. What happened? His personal freedoms were violated, and he's not okay with it. Well, the fact that his boundaries for personal freedoms and mine are different doesn't change the fact. Don't tread on me. Stay off my personal freedoms. If this is about student safety, then let's start with the big hitters. Let's start with doing something about alcohol, and let's start doing something about texting and driving. If you really cared about students, you would focus on where the most students are dying. But we're not focused on that. We're focused on trying to get rid of guns. Well, if you're really focused on student safety, maybe we should compare the most two recent shootings. One, the bad guy had guns, and the, the wuss gun-armed cops didn't go in and help those students, and there was a huge massacre. A week or two later, there's another school shooting. A patriot hero, armed, showed up, took out the shooter. If anything, what we have in front of us is that guns save lives. They don't cost lives. Now, a criminal can use them to take lives, but if you take the tool away, they'll do the same thing in another way. If it's actually about protecting students, let's have that discussion. If it's about gun control and disarming the populace, then let's have that discussion. But let's stop accusing law-abiding citizens of causing these crimes. Because, Jay, you didn't cause these crimes. The NRA did not cause these crimes. And we should be appalled when we're accused of it. You know, a topic that you and I talked about earlier in the hunting community about trail cameras and about the sharing of the data, sportsmen, when rules change, we accept that. And I think we need to stop doing that. In our country, the way you fight back, unfortunately, has to do with lawsuits. What do you think would happen, Jay, if like-minded people got together and started suing our government when they take our rights away. 
about things like trail cameras and getting the data about flying. We didn't go to court and fight and argue about it. We bitch and complain for a little while, and then we give up and we go back to work. We need to start suing people and changing these things the way the other side of the equation does, okay? Um, when the NRA is attacked and accused of these things, I believe they ought to start filing lawsuits against the people that slandered them. If you start prosecuting those people and harming them financially, then they would be more careful in the words that they choose. You have the freedom of speech, but the freedom of speech is talking about the government. The freedom of speech does not give you the right to say dishonest and untruths about another person or another entity. It's called defamation of character, and we have laws against that in this country. But for the most part, on our side of the aisle, we're too polite to step up and defend ourselves in those ways. And I think we need to stop doing that. I would love, for one, to see the NRA sue that little twit on TV for all of the untruths <laughs> that he shared about the NRA. Wouldn't that make some front-page news? And, and gee, is that crazy? I mean, give me some feedback. Am I out of line for saying that? <laughs> no. I love no. it. You're oh, laughing, but I love it. I'm 100% serious. I am sick and tired of seeing the spindly-armed little kid on TV. So I don't watch TV. <laughs> but um, okay, what he's, I, what he's doing is not okay. I, I want to shift gears for just a second and bring up one more topic. But before I do that, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider, GoHunt.com Insider, for the title sponsorship of this podcast. And I want to encourage you guys, the listeners, if you're not already a Go Hunt Insider member, to go to GoHunt.com forward slash Insider, follow the blue Join Now buttons. When you, when you sign up, use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. You can automatically be spending money right away, free money, $50 up front. It's the best Western hunting resource out there with all these Western states, all these applications that we're doing across the West. It's the best resource out there with the best draw odds, best statistics, best harvest data, uh, best strategy articles. Go check them out, gohunt.com uh, forward slash insider. also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. and Go to KUIU. Dot com. That's kuyu.com to find out about the best ultralight hunting gear made. Uh, and phonescope.com, use the JScott16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount at all the products at Phonescope. And the Outdoorsman, the Optics Authority, use the JScott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there with Cody Nelson and his crew at 1-800-291-8065 or the outdoorsmans.com. Use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. Russ, I want to shift gears here and ask you about one more thing, and it's an issue that I, I don't really know how to put my finger on it, but I, I'll, I'll kind of lay the groundwork and just get kind of your take on it. What we've seen over the last couple of years is a push with the hunting community whether it be through social media, through you know Facebook, Instagram, what have you, um, this push towards uh, being meat eaters 
and being meat hunters. And, you know, my friend Stephen Ranella and Giannis, they do such a great job over at the Meat Eater TV uh, and with the Meat Eater podcast, and they've really brought to light, in my mind, some great things about, you know, harvesting the animals and then eating that meat and, you know, utilizing that meat. And I think they've brought quite a few people that maybe are in the middle, not against hunting or not for hunting, but can see, you know, positive things about eating the meat. But I feel like that's something that us as hunters have always done. I think they've done a phenomenal job of, you know, putting their spin to show that, you know, they're hunting for for meat, and that's the reason why they hunt. I'm going a little bit off, I don't want to say off the rails, but I'm going, I want to say that, you know, what's funny to me is there's kind of been a push that that's why we should hunt is just for the harvest of meat, and that um, as hunters, we're only doing it to eat meat. Well, I eat meat, whether it's steak, whether it's deer, whether it's elk, whether it's sheep, whatever it may be. I love eating meat. I love eating fish. I'm a carnivore. But I also feel like there's been some villainizing. I don't even know if that's a word. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, there, There has been kind of a light shed on people like myself that like the sport of hunting. Yes, do I harvest the, the, the animal? Yes, do I take care of the meat? Of course. Do I eat all of the meat of every animal that I harvest? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I donate the meat to someone that needs it more than I do. Okay? But I feel like a little bit there's been like this um, almost like guys that feel like I love the sport of hunting. I love the preparation for the hunt. I love the all of the strategy and trying to make myself a more efficient hunter, trying to be a student of the game. And to take that even a step further, I enjoy harvesting older, mature animals, and I like spending more time in the field. I feel like if we try and push hunting in a direction of we're only trying to recruit hunters so that they go out and harvest what they kill or, you know, harvest the animal just for the sake of meat, I think there's a lot more to hunting that gets missed. And honestly, I think that if people can't enjoy, you know, the bend of a rod when they go fishing and do it because they enjoy feeling that feeling of I haven't been able to catch fish for three days. Now I figured out what bait they're eating. I like the feel of a fish on the end of my rod. Or I haven't been able to kill a turkey, and I've done it for three years now. Now I understand all the ins and outs of the sport of it. If you follow where I'm going, I feel like recruiting more hunters and more fishermen we have to do a better job of showing how fun it is. There's even this push that, you know, we shouldn't smile in photos and that we should, in reverence to the animal, not have a big grin on our face and that we should not look at the camera and we should be looking down at the animal. We shouldn't prop the head up. And 
while I'll, I will agree there was a period of time there where hunting TV personalities and old-time hunting shows, say, of 15, 10, 15 years ago, where we've probably overcooked it, it made it look fake, and it turned into this, you know, look at me, and it was all about, you know, holding the deer's head up. I feel like it's a somewhat of a slippery slope if we're only trying to portray our hunting and fishing as it's for the harvest of, or it's for the um, use of the of the animal's meat. And, you know, you can't go fishing and let a fish go because, uh, you know, you need to kill that fish and eat it. What about hunting because it's fun, because it's a challenge? What about fishing because you love fishing and getting up early and doing it with your grandpa and your dad and you love the struggle of not being able to catch fish then all of a sudden you figure it out and you, you learn how to catch fish I'm just curious your thoughts on on all of that i know it's quite a bit to dump on you but just what what are your <laughs> thoughts well jay i appreciate you asking me and um my mind raced many places as you were having that but many times during the podcast today we talk about the north american conservation model in that conservation model, we teach students that there's many levels or natural progressions or uh, development of a hunter. And it's a psychological thing. I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not going to pretend to explain how it all works. But what they teach in hunter education is most hunters start off at stage one. And stage one is where the most important thing to you is, is just being out there and having that experience and in that stage at some point it's important to you that you just fill your day tag like if you're going turkey hunting you're doing it to try to get a turkey you're not doing it just to be out there if you just want to be out there then just go be out there you don't need a turkey tag to do that but after you meet that objective or you meet that goal then it's a natural progression usually the next step the hunters go to is like hey, I got a turkey, now I want to get another one. And after you get pretty comfortable with that, then you want to help other people. Um, and then as you progress through the development stages of a hunter, those natural development stages, you reach categories where it's just not as challenging and uh, helping other people is fun for you, but you want to take it to the next level. And for most people, they then start looking at more primitive ways of harvesting that animal. And they will look at archery equipment or muzzleloaders or other more primitive techniques but then there's even other categories and as you get older and more experienced the natural progression leads to giving back and you see a lot of older sports people sportsmen and women where they are involved in the conservation organizations they're mentoring youth and it's more important to them the quality of the experience they have in the outdoors than necessarily filling their tag or the size of the animal or those other things. Trophy hunting is a progression in that natural progression. Where problems come in is when somebody in a certain stage or a certain group starts to say, hey, pound in their chest, what I'm doing is better or more pure than what you're doing. Well, that's, that's not okay. In North America, in America, with a constitution, we say people have freedom. Jay, if you want to archery hunt turkeys, you're free to do that. If someone else wants to use a shotgun, they're free to do that. If you choose to do that because of the sport, more power for you. Someone else chooses to do it to put meat on the table, more power for them. 
as hunters, we need to stick together and stop bickering about why you're doing it and how you're doing it and just focus on you are doing it, okay? Now, we need to police our ranks. If someone in our ranks is behaving inappropriately, then we should do something about that. If they're breaking laws, we should prosecute them. If they're behaving unethically, we ought to try to influence them. But to come along and say, you're not doing it right because you're not doing it the way I think you should be doing it, that's bad. And it's no more complicated than that. Now, Jay, there are very few people in North America today that choose to go hunting that do it because they have to to put meat on the table. That certainly does happen. But if you're trying to go deer hunting to put meat on the table, I'm here to tell you that's not a cost-effective way to do it. <laughs> I think most sportsmen will teach you um, that it's much more expensive to go harvest the meat than it would be to purchase it. But there's a lot of people that go harvest the meat because of the purity of the meat, um, that it's not raised with the antibiotics, that it's natural, that it is organic, right? But let me share an example. You still there? Yep. My grandmother was raised during the Great Depression. She understands hunger in a way that you and I fortunately never have and hopefully never will. That woman utilized game meat in a way that you and I probably can't relate to. And I know that because as a little tiny boy, I watched how she treated a deer when she cared for it. That was sustenance in a way that our society today that eats Tide Pods has a hard time relating to. My grandmother would shoot the first legal deer she found because that put meat on the table. It didn't matter how big the horns were. Now, anyone that thinks my grandmother um, was wrong for doing that because she didn't kill a trophy doesn't understand my grandmother. As my grandmother aged, she hunted with hunters that were trophy hunters. Never one time in her life did I see her judge another hunter because they chose to hunt for different reasons than her. She understood that you hunt and you enjoy it and people do it for different reasons. Treat other people like you want to be treated and everything will work out. Now, my grandmother's area is different than ours. When she was alive, for most of her life, you could buy a deer tag over the counter and go hunt. There's not enough opportunities to go around and the management of the herd has changed to where now it's a draw cycle. And there are hunts that you can get drawn for every year and there's hunts that it takes 30 years of applying to finally accrue enough preference points to draw. Which one of those two experiences is more pure? And the answer is neither. They're both valued for the person that's having and choosing to have that experience. Isn't it wonderful that we live in a nation where such a diverse group of people can choose which of those hunting experiences they want? I also think you can understand these points and perspectives and challenges and opportunities if you understand my grandmother's perspective on fishing, okay? Catch and release fishing did not exist when my grandmother was alive. I am quite sure that if my grandmother, looking down on us from wherever she's at today, sees someone release a fish 
She scratched her head. It can't begin to understand how that works. That is so foreign to her existence. And rightfully so. They caught fish to eat them. They certainly had fun doing it. And it was an enjoyable outdoor experience as a family. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have YouTube. Hell, she didn't have a television. She was a character. And my love of hunting is down deep in my bones because of my ancestors. My grandmother would turn over in her grave if she saw you release a big old fat trout, Jay. She would not understand. <laughs> As a society, catch and release fishing has become all the rage for my most of my adult life. Um, to the point that if you keep certain game fish, you're a bad person. And last time I checked, the game and fish laws in Arizona allow you certain bag limits. And I don't think we should be guilty for utilizing those animals. Um, I agree. But the society is I agree, crazy. but on the, other, on the other side, though, it's like, you know, if, if, if all it was was to go out and catch that one fish and, you know, kill them, it's like you wouldn't fish all day. You'd, you'd go catch your right. one fish and you'd be right. done and you'd leave. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I was heading. Um, you know, we don't have a ton of time, but uh, in our waters now, there's mercury and other contaminants that uh, have raised the levels in fish to where many of the waters close to my home, there's uh, limits of how much it's safe to eat. So the situation that we're in today is much different than the situation my grandmother was in. You know, my grandmother might have uh, provided many meals for her family solely through fishing. If you were to pre perform those same behaviors today, you would hurt yourself from the contaminants in those fish. So the situation is different, and you need to apply logic and reason and make good choices about the new situation. When my grandmother was alive, the number of game animals and fish and the number of people pursuing those pursuits are much different than they are today. But as a society, I don't think we should judge people whether they choose to fish for fun or whether they choose to fish for meat, because both are equally viable reasons to fish. You asked about taking photographs and some of those other things. If someone takes a picture you don't like, don't look at the picture. It's real simple. But to go out and criticize that person for taking that picture, if it's an ethical picture and it's a legal picture, what right do you have to criticize that person? I don't think you have one. Now, the problem with ethics is that's an individual decision. It's an individual judgment. But we need to be very careful when we go criticize someone else to be assured that that really is a problem and not just because we were personally offended by it. Our society has gotten so trained that just get offended, then speak up. And um, what's that old adage? If you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. There certainly mm -hmm. is a time to say something, but by and large, our society should just keep to themselves and keep their mouth shut as opposed to going out of the way to try to offend somebody else. If you don't agree with their perspective, Go become friends with them and try to change your position. But don't attack them online. That's not going to change anything. That's just going to alienate people. And I don't know. I don't know what else we can say about it, but um, I certainly do support uh, the people out there that are, that are meat hunters, that are trying to get more people in our ranks. I know that a lot of my friends that are coming from backgrounds that you might consider anti-hunters are now hunters because I took the time to take them under my wings, bring them along, and share the experience with them. And now they're hunters. 
that's certainly better than if we'd approached it a different way, alienated them, and, and they weren't on our side. Um, the number of hunters in North America is decreasing. If we as a group don't do something about it, I think it's a matter of time before we're so few in number at the ballot box that we eventually will be voted out of existence. And uh, that would be a travesty because when we get voted out of existence, the animals suffering is not far behind. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Uh, I want to conclude here. We've just got a few minutes left. I, um, I don't know if you've seen the hunt recommendations for bighorn sheep. Uh, they just hit the uh, uh, Game of Fish website, I believe, on Wednesday, March 21st is when they're dated. Have you been able to see, see the hunt recommendations for sheep? And for, I have for looked at them. Fall? I have, haven't delved into them in great detail. Okay, I want to ask you a couple questions. It looks like um, 12A, 12B West, they got rid of that hunt, but they switched it to a um, one-tag Kanab Creek hunt area, 12A West, 12B West, and 13A. Curious your thoughts on that change. So, um, you know, a lot of people you ask questions to spout off and they don't really have the data. So we packed the bighorn sheep out of that unit that was killed last year. So I think we're in a unique situation to comment on that particular situation. Um, there's a lot going on there. There certainly are sheep there, and it can support a huntable population. But I think when you see them readjust boundaries like they have there, they're pointing out a situation that just because Jay Scott can go in there with his resources and his abilities and he can find a sheep in a certain region doesn't mean everyone else can. And I think they recognize that. And I think what they're trying to do is give the average person a better opportunity to harvest a sheep in that region. Um, it's frustrating as a sportsman when artificial lines drawn by humans cause you to make a choice in the field. For example, in this particular situation, if the older ram that you need or ethically should be removing from the gene pool is on the wrong side of a line drawn in the sand on a map with game and fish, you don't have the opportunity to harvest that ram. By them changing the hunt boundary, you now have that opportunity that either if you can't find a sheep, you have a different region to look, or if you're a more accomplished ethical sportsman that is able to find an older ram on the other side of the canyon, you now can hunt the other side of the canyon. So all in all, I think that's probably a good uh, decision. I don't think it will have that big of an impact on the outcome of the hunt. Um, but I do know that that was an awkward place to hunt because you're hunting a canyon and you could only shoot on one side of it. And that was kind of a weird situation. So does that answer okay. your question? Yeah, it does. They also split 12B East into two hunts now, November 16th through December 6th. There's three tags, and then December 7th through December 31st. I know 12B uh, East is a unit that you know well, so there's six tags total. Just curious your thoughts on splitting that. If you think that for hunt quality and for the overall benefit of the sheep, will that be better? I think it will be better, and the reason why is this. Um, the number of sheep there has been increasing in recent years, and sheep populations are definitely cyclical. As sportsmen, we should be glad when they increase tags and they take advantage of those sheep numbers um, because whether you harvest them or not, typically within uh, X number of years, there's going to be disease come through and they're going to get wiped out anyway. 
So where you can take advantage of a sustainable population and that North American model that we keep talking about of conservation can take it effect, additional revenue is generated, additional work is done on the ground, additional resources are provided, that's a good thing. Um, Gimmick Fish has a couple ways they can increase tags. They can either increase more tags in the same time or they can split up to multiple times. The downside of more tags at the same time is at some point you become crowded in the field. By doing it over a long period of time, they can provide this wilderness experience where you don't interact with the other hunters as much, but you still harvest more sheep. So I think it's a good compromise of increasing tag numbers without changing the quality of the hunt for each individual person. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And then we'll finish here. We could talk. We'll probably have to, well, we will do other podcasts on sheep. I just wanted to go over this. They took a unit uh, 15D, which is actually where I met you years ago. Um, last year, there was four tags. It was unit-wide. They've gone back to splitting it into 15D North and 15D South, and they went to four tags in North and two tags in South. I kind of liked it when they went back to all of 15D. I, I, I probably know why they split it in the two units back to north and south. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on split on the split of north and south. So I've hunted it both ways, and um, I've also seen it where sheep migrate uh, substantially from one side to the other. Um, the government agencies, what they're trying to do is force people to hunt in certain spots. Um, when it's all one unit, it's nice because as a hunter, you can go where you want. So that's a freedom thing. We like freedom. The downside to that is most hunters probably harvested in the north. And if you're trying to more evenly distribute the harvest, um, if hunters don't do that for themselves by hunting in the south unit, the government agency is going to respond by splitting that up and encouraging hunters, or in this case, forcing hunters to be in a certain area. If you believe that they're honestly trying to manage the game animals and remove them from a certain area or take advantage of an event in a certain area, like in this case, the disease that's in that unit, there's going to be sheep in the south half that are going to die because of the disease. Harvesting those animals is taking advantage of that resource that would otherwise be lost. If hunters aren't going to do that on their own, the only way they can create that situation is with the change in the regulations that you're seeing. So for an individual freedom, it's a bad thing. From a holistic view of the sheep herd, it's probably a good thing. Um, sportsmen don't have to apply for that unit, and they certainly have their choice of which side they apply for. Now, you and I both know we've killed some great sheep in the north half, and we've killed some tremendous sheep in the south half. Um, in drought years, the north half is probably a lot better than the south half, which is probably why you see the sheep numbers split the way that they are. Um, I think it'd be great if you could hunt the whole thing, but realistically, the only way they're going to harvest some of those sheep in a drought year in the southern half is probably push hunters that direction. So, yeah, good point. I don't know. Does that help? Good point. Yeah, absolutely. Russ, we've covered a ton of ground tonight. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us, um, giving you a chance. If you have any concluding thoughts or anything else you'd like to say, and um, let people know how they can uh, get a hold of you, too. Okay. Well, Jay, I want to say I really appreciate you having me on here. Um, you know, uh, doing the podcast with you is something I look forward to, and it's always a great time to catch up. 
Uh, we get a little animated at times, especially today covering some of these controversial topics. Don't want to offend anyone, um, but I do hope it gets people thinking and talking about the issues. More importantly, let's get out there and vote, because if we don't, it's going to turn out badly for us. Um, we really need to, um, if it makes it to the ballot, vote against the lion hunting ban in Arizona. And with these midterm elections coming up, get out there and vote in such a way that it's going to support our religious beliefs and our, our freedoms that we all know and love. So I appreciate you doing this, getting the word out to people. want to continue to congratulate you on the success of your podcast. I think it's just awesome how many followers you have. I know so many people reach out to me and go, man, that Jay Scott is just awesome. I really appreciate what he does, and it's really made a difference for me. So I know hunters that say they're almost in tears. I didn't harvest an elk until I heard this tidbit on Jay Scott's podcast. So you are making a difference on the ground with real people out there trying to do the right thing in the field, and, and I applaud that. So congratulations, Jay. Um, Thank you, buddy. I'll give you two Two ways to get a hold of me, and I think Jay will put this in the podcast as well. Uh, my cell phone number is area code 928-814-9622. I do my best to always return phone calls. If you reach out to me and I don't pick up, I'm probably in the woods with poor signal. Leave me a message and I'll get back to you. If I don't call you back, I didn't get the message. Despite having uh, smartphones, once in a while when I'm in the woods, those messages get lost in cyberspace and never make their way through. I always call people back. If you didn't hear from me, I didn't get the message. Please call again. And then my email. It's coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. And I welcome the, the emails. I know that when we've covered air rifles and other topics in the past, um, it's always cool to see what part of the globe I get an email from asking questions about a specific topic. And um, I always know that those came from the Jay Scott podcast. So, Jay, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate um, being one of your guests. I consider it to be an honor. Um, I look forward to hunting with you this year and also um, getting to do the podcast again in the future. So thank you, Jay. Sounds great, buddy. God bless. We'll catch you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye.